Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. So we spend a lot of time thinking about things, or at least we say we do. I've given this some thought, let's think this over, but how deeply do we really think? Do we take the time? Do we catch our bias? Do we get critical enough to get to a truly different place? Well, I can tell you one person who does, my guest today. Welcome to the show, Matt Klein. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I was just on another um, show before and I was like bragging that I've got I've got an interview with Matt Klein after oh, this. Oh, no. <laughs> Too kind. <laughs> so I'm really, really excited about this. Um, As so am I. I think most people know who you are, but let's do a little bit of an introduction about you to start. Thank you so much. So I am Matt Klein. I am a strategist, a cyber psychologist, a cultural theorist, a writer. Um, I think these are really just sexy ways of saying I look for patterns in culture. That's really all I do. Um, I, I study what's out there and I try to make sense of it for organizations to help not just ourselves, but for, for brands and VC investors, TV producers, et cetera, make sense of what's to come and how we can prepare accordingly and further author a preferred future. If we don't know what's happening all around us, how can we steer the ship in a way that is more equitable, mindful, sustainable, exciting, et cetera? I'm very excited to have this chat because I am an overthinker. I, I, I think too much and I'm excited to uh, think about the thinking. Um, that feels meta. Um, but more than anything, I am a collector of hobbies. Uh, and maybe this is an interesting uh, transition in, in that I am obsessed with just finding things to not think about. I study wine. I love documentaries. I love guitar. I love the drums. I love long distance cycling. And I found that the antidote to my overthinking is to find things that I am bad at and just dive in because that feels as if it is the alternative to the the fire brain that's uh, going 24-7. Oh, I love that. So is the the seeking out of those things that are maybe more physical or more distracting to get you to stop using your brain? It's a bit of that. I've also found that, right, you, you look at a problem and you you walk away from it, you, you, you walk it out. Somehow, magically, that thing gets unlocked or unscrambled. Um, there's a bit of that. I mean, I'm, I'm eating my own words in, in two senses, but one way I think the the role of these hobbies is to kind of unlock what I've been stuck on. But on the other hand of it, it's a way to to deviate or to escape from that thinking in the first place. I mean, the long distance cycling thing for me is absolutely magical. Absolutely magical. I can't explain it where I black out. Like I, I tell my partner, I'm like, I don't know what happens. I don't, it's a flow state. It's, I don't know, I don't know what it is, mm. but my mind stops working and it's the most incredible thing. What's your favorite um, kind of go-to then to to get you to like really, really clarify a process of thought? Yeah, this this one is, is more simplistic and I, I feel bad that it's such a cliche answer, but my process here is I almost like load up my brain. I binge, binge eat information and I, I spend, I don't know, it could be 15 minutes, it could be two hours long. Like, let me just try to eat as much as possible of what I'm trying to kind of unlock. And I take that walk around the block. Mm -hmm. I don't do it enough. I don't do it enough. But that simple act of 
no music, no nothing, just let all of that simmer on the back burner, something happens. I mean, there are studies about it. I don't know if it's supernatural or what, but I don't do it enough again. But I found that when I do have that mindfulness to kind of pause and make that process happen, something gets unstuck. Something, and it, that's that's the irony, right? It's the the Chinese finger trap. It's like the the more you keep on pushing, the the less effective it is. As soon as you let go, you you add some relief, you you stop the push. That's when that's when something comes out of it. Mm. And so I can imagine that you do a lot of that by yourself. Like yes. you, you spend a lot of time thinking through things. So do you ever have like a person that you go to to bounce ideas around with, or do you prefer to do that by by yourself? It's a mix. It's definitely a mix. It's truly anyone who would listen. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have absolutely brilliant coworkers and, and a network and opportunities like this to to chat things out. It's my own partner. I, I don't know how much uh, she likes what, what I have to say about the, the things in which I'm thinking about, which are all over the place and mm. just extraneous and, and, and nothing. But I think to your point of what we're kind of getting at here is that no different than kind of the, the, the cycling, there's a balance in kind of keeping it to yourself and just kind of talking it out with someone else. Um, there's effectiveness in, in both of that. Just verbalizing I think is is key, but more than anything else, what I found most effective is writing. And that's really why I write. I don't, mm. it's not really for other people as much as it is for myself. And that writing process helps you distill and find the words to describe exactly what you're saying. There's a pressure to that, which I find challenging, but also joyful. But it's like, I don't know, you take something like my, my most recent piece, which is going to come out is on modern religion. What is about the decline of traditional religions and the fandom and the cults that step in? And what does that say about meaning, ritual, belonging, and purpose? I don't know. That was a fascinating concept to me. And I just forced myself to make a piece about it. Mm. And that writing was the organization of random thoughts and quotes and articles. Mm. And in that attempt to kind of distill it into something that's legible to, to an audience, it's helpful for me for, again, the, the organization or distillation of thought. Mm. And so I'm really curious then about the process that you go through to do that, because I know writing for a lot of people who have very active minds, they're, as Mark Pollard likes to put it, it's a little bit therapeutic. So it's kind mm -hmm. of just getting it all down. Or do you have a process that you go through that's quite methodical where you edit, you refine, you research, you refine again? I wish it was uh, <laughs> it was more method. There, there's a method in there. Um, there isn't. It's and I almost feel as if there's. I'm going to keep on using this word. I don't know why, but th there's a magic to the the you know disarray or the disorganization of just like finding something you're interested in and just going down that path. Like there is no step one, step two, step three. And it feels as if having those steps are sometimes too limiting or restrictive to just allowing things to pour out. More often than not, it will start with one signal a bit of inspiration of like, okay, wow, that's that's really fascinating. What's up with that? And it will just kind of stay on the back burner. We'll just kind of simmer like, okay, let's see what else is out in culture that connects to that thing. That could be a week, that could be an hour, or that could be sometimes months in the past. And I kind of just collect those things in a notepad. What are those collections of interesting signals that make up a constellation of, okay, there's something here. Once I have enough you know, signal or support or ammo, whatever word we want to use. I'm like, okay, something's forming. Let me try to connect those dots. 
those pieces turn into kind of a rough draft. And as I start that writing process, it's inspiration of, oh, that reminds me of X, Y, and Z. Or it's like, there's some cognitive bias or there, there's some effect here. Like once you start thinking about something, you start seeing it everywhere. And I found that in a little bit of this writing, right? You start forming your thoughts. It's a little seedling. You start looking around. You're like, oh, wait, that reminds me of that too. Or, oh, wait, there's there's that thing too. You start having conversations like, oh, have you heard of X, Y, and Z? You're like, oh, no, I haven't. Let's include that into the stew. Then that piece builds and builds and builds. And then you're just kind of refining and, and, and molding and, and shaping throughout. Mm-hmm. The caveat here or the difficulty is learning when to ship it. And saying, here are the here's the distilled thoughts. Let me just throw it out there and, and let someone else upcycle that or use that for their own signal, for their own writing. I found in the past, and this goes back to the very beginning too, right? The overthinking. I've written something. I'm like, all right, I, I've got it. This is already way too long. But you keep on seeing the signals in culture. You start mm-hmm. having even more trailheads. And it's how do you stop yourself before turning into, you know, the this five series volume of, of, of nonsense. Like, how do you learn to just kind of cut it and say, okay, stop overthinking, just get it out and, and, and throw it into the world. Um, I don't have a solution there, but my long short here is that there is no process. And I think by just staying true to that inspiration and then bringing the outside in, you, you can't really go wrong. It sounds a little cliche. I don't, I don't know if I, if I love how that sounds, but it, it's, it somehow has worked for me. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like something that anybody can do. Obviously, the way that you do it is has been, you know, refined and your brain is unique, very unique in, in how you collect information and how you sort through it. But I feel like it's applicable to to how people can start to do this. And I like the idea of, you know, when you're when you throw it out to the world, you probably get responses from people that make you, you know, spark another idea or, or another route to go through. And, you know, particularly what you said before, where you create almost like your own little analysis of what you're seeing and you're already thinking about the what if or the blind spot or the wild card so when you hear it in a common conversation the next day you're like well you're you're thinking on that topic's probably more advanced so you're almost like one step ahead of the game in in common conversations exactly. well it's it's a curiosity i mean mm-hmm. that's what this really all comes down to right it's like not putting up any walls and accepting everything as as valid, even the weird, the fringy, the edgy, et cetera. It's just placing value in that and recognizing this may be interesting. Let me go down this trail and, and see what happens. And I think having that open-mindedness and that innate curiosity is incredibly valuable and oftentimes hot take here, a little scarce, especially when it comes to kind of like cultural thinking or, or trend forecasting. It's, I have my idea of what this thing is and anything that you know, falls outside of that, you know, doesn't fit this narrative and I'm not going to talk about it. But at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that culture is inherently messy, ambiguous, constantly evolving dynamic and paradoxes and contradictions and tensions and friction exist. Mm. That's a part of it. That That's what makes this all so fun in the first place and being open to that and trying to explain how the black and the white make sense together or coexist in culture is something that brings me, uh, I don't know, joy. I, I find that thing fascinating, but I think there's value in just being open to really anything, even if it contradicts what you're talking about and bringing that in. Yes, definitely. So on that point about contradictions, I'd love to get your take on this. So 
obviously we do fall into these patterns where we we look for the familiar and we make you know generalizations and assumptions i went to a trend presentation yesterday so this is really top of mind for mm-hmm. me because i was just listening to it like i have a terrible poker face i was trying not to let that show but i was just like cringing because there were so many generalizations and so we we look for the familiar we look for the you know our own kind of narratives that we're we've we've already set for whatever it is that we're seeing. So how do you get to that uncommon thinking? Like how do you get into that space where you're looking at something that's very familiar to you and that you think that you know and look at it from a different way? It's just willingness. It's truly just willingness. I don't think it's as much as like an active kind of I'm going to go out and and seek things that, you know, contradict. Mm. I mean, you can do that, right? You could get out of your media diet ecosystem or echo chamber, whatever you want to call it, and seek out fringe thoughts that contradict or publications that don't fit your norm. You could, I guess you could do that actively. But I think my approach at least is being open or willing to, if anything comes in, not to dismiss it. I think we we do that instinctively when it comes to data all the time. Like, oh, this doesn't really fit the narrative. Let's throw that aside. I do the exact opposite. It's okay, this completely blows up what I'm about to say. How can both of these things coexist? And finding that middle ground or the bridge between those two, that's where the value is because that's the explanation of what we're after in the first place. What about you? I mean, what I, I want to throw it back to you. <laughs> how, how do you bridge? How do you not just bridge, you know, two contradictory things, but is it a active approach of seeking out things that contradict? Is it internal? What, what What about you? Yeah, I think that you you said it really well that you have to remain open. So really catch your own bias, but also not be dismissive of another perspective because you think that you know the answer. But I really like the the idea of holding your hypothesis loosely. That whole concept of coming into any conversation, like even this one here, when we're talking about, you know, critical thinking, I have my own concepts about how you how you do that. But actually, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe your approach can help me to open up, you know, a different way of looking at it. So I know what you mean. Like when you talk about this, it sounds really simple. <laughs> like it's a no brainer, but it's, it's hard. It's not. No, it's really hard. I mean, let's let's zoom out though. Like what we're doing here is trying to make sense of culture. We're distilling it down to the most, you know, simple story for anyone to understand and further to actually activate upon. As soon as you have like a kink in that gear and the story doesn't make sense, the natural tendency is to say, no, no, thank you. Ignore, like mm. put the blinders on because this is going to blow everything up. Now trying to make sense of that contradiction, that tension, that caveat, the number that doesn't fit the narrative, trying to then weave that in is so much extra work. Like that's not dismiss that. It's confusing. It's time consuming. It's demotivating. I don't know, it, th- there's something about value in there as well, where you mm-hmm. thought you knew the answer and you're not good at it. And it, that that happens too. But that extra work of trying to make sense of that contradiction, like the explanation of how you could hold both of these things simultaneously, make that little piece is where you transform strategy into incredible strategy. Mm, Yes, yes. I love that so much. And letting them sit alongside each other. So often we talk about, particularly in our realms, we talk about trends. And when we get asked questions about trends, it's very kind of linear going down one specific path. It's a forecast that people are looking for. Totally. And when you bring up a counter trend, you know, like I've had this question before, of, like, so which one is it going to be? 
the trend of mm-hmm. the couch. <laughs> so like exactly. both can coexist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you take something like, I don't know, sober bars in cities where people are having, you know, green cocktails without alcohol dancing as if it's a nightclub or, you know, day raves at six o'clock in the morning during a, a weekday, while you simultaneously have the decriminalization of psychedelics, psilocybin, et cetera, out in the West. Mm-hmm. How can you have these two things simultaneously? Do people want to escape reality and explore the, the you know new frontiers of their own consciousness? Or do they want to be more tethered to reality and grounded and focus on, uh, I don't know, stability or their health? To your point, it's not one or the other. Like these two things can coexist and in fact, inform one another, mm-hmm. right? These two energies inform the intensity of the other side. I think we often forget in our process of trying to distill culture down to a very simple story. People are weird. People are crazy. They're irrational. They're unpredictable. All this is so fucking weird. So to even attempt to think that this is a black and white thing is so myopic. Mm -hmm. And it's not fun either, right? Trying to make sense of why people are going after ketamine therapy and non-alcoholic beer at the same time. That weird middle ground is to me so much more fascinating Mm, yes, yes. Because we often t- talk about like tipping points, like they'll move from one to the other. And, you know, maybe it's dependent on their life stage or maybe it's dependent on innovation and how these things scale in the market. But actually, maybe both just coexist. Like we are contradictory, like really frustratingly stupid at times people. So it's kind of like these questions that we get about sustainability is like, you know, when are people going to start to adopt behaviors that match their value systems? Well, maybe they won't. Maybe they want both. Maybe they want Mm -hmm. everything. Maybe they just want it to be really easy for them. And it's just too hard. It doesn't mean that they don't care. So I like the, I like what you're saying about, you know, letting those things sit together because we often look for simplicity going back to Mm -hmm. that point so simplicity also is about you know and this is again a really big trap for foresight and trends rise like distilling something down into something that's easily understood so when you're communicating some of these concepts and ideas and narratives when you're when you've gone through that process of exploration how do you keep the complexity but make it simple enough to get oh that's a good one. That's a good one. I think one element, and I don't know if this helps with the complexity side or the simplicity side, but I try to use as many just hard, tangible examples as possible. If you go back to uh, sustainability and and how we have these two contradictions, we could just say contradictions, 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 mm. and it doesn't really mean much until we actually visualize it. Imagine someone going to a climate march and then at home opting in for two-day Amazon shipping. (laughs) Bringing that to life and truly visualizing it, I think, brings to life both the complexity of this weird contradiction, but also the simplicity of, oh yeah, I could physically see someone doing that or myself doing that. So I think to to answer that question, I don't know if these hard examples fit with the complexity side of the simplicity side, maybe it's those examples that fit both of them simultaneously. Mm. So I'm always on the lookout for not just, you know, these explanations, but these physical signals that everyone can relate to. Oh, that makes sense. I, I, I can imagine that. I think the relatability here is a key ingredient to hitting both, you know, the messiness of what's happening with the, oh, yeah, this is happening in my day too. 
Mm-hmm. And when you bring those examples to people, or those, uh, you know, signals, do you find that people want you to make it even easier and simpler for them? So what I mean by that is, you know, often I'll present something and I'll show an example from another category or another industry and the pushback is, yeah, but that's not relevant for food. Or, you know, I can't see a chocolate consumer doing that. Mm-hmm. And then you're like looking for the example in chocolate. It's like it doesn't have to be from your immediate realm, right? Because these things are interconnected. You're talking about human behavior. You're not talking about category-specific behavior. Yeah, I think the solution here, and this is what's worked for me, is show how culture operates horizontally and not vertically, right? Because clients often think just within their vertical, it's, I'm only going to look at signals and competitors that are related to my hotel industry. Innovation comes from outside one's vertical, and it's critical for us to look outside of that. You take a, a key case study, something like right esports or live streaming gaming. Live streaming gaming was at a time just related to a video game industry. If you brought that to a beauty client or to retail or anyone within the food industry, they're like, okay, cool. What does this have to do with me? <laughs> But fast forward, right, a, mm-hmm. a handful of years, now you have people live streaming themselves eating with mukbang. You have people live streaming themselves with their beauty routines getting ready in the morning. You have people live streaming themselves, you know, doing a shopping haul. I mean, these are, you know, older examples of, of YouTube era. But when you recognize that a live streaming concept had nothing to do with just gaming, but can spill over into other verticals, that recognition, I find at least, makes people a little bit more open of, okay, maybe this can apply to my space, even if I don't see it today. Yes, yes, definitely. And so when you're doing that, do you look at the complete opposite almost of the category that you're operating in to try to get that kind of like real stretch of, um, you know, thinking in the example? You you can. Um, the extreme certainly helps because the extreme is, you know, right, the the least likely. And if you get so uncomfortable with the least likely, they can at least accept things on the other side of the spectrum. The game here is how do you wear, you know, different people's hats or or kind of look through their their glasses, wear their shoes, whatever metaphor you want to use, mm-hmm. for them to be more open to that thing. So I mean the the game that you could play, and this is easy on calls or or workshops, you know, let's go through a handful of signals and let's imagine we're the CEO of someone outside of our vertical. Or let's view these signals through the eyes of a pirate or a criminal and how they may interpret this as an opportunity for exploitation. Or let's view these signals through the eyes of a teenager and what they may think of it. That exercise of trying to interpret these signals through a different perspective allows you to, I mean, let's call it what it is, role play as a different thinker. That exercise of being a different thinker in a second order effect allows you to be more open. So when it comes back to you taking off these glasses or shoes or metaphor, hat, whatever you want to use, you're now more open to understanding how this may then affect you. Mm -hmm. So all of that sounds obviously like a great gateway to uncommon thinking, which leads to new possibilities and new potential for our business. But it also sounds very creative. So do you run the trap of being like that person who comes up with great thought experiments and really kind of pushes you into creative, imaginative spaces, but it feels uh, less credible? Sure. I mean, that's that's certainly a risk. There's there's risk to all of this. It's all dependent upon, right, you know, client comfort, 
client seniority, mm. risk tolerance, et cetera, mm. right? That all runs the gambit. There are ways in which you can do this, which are still rooted in business or cut and dry. Is this a threat? Is this an opportunity? I think we get to kind of tinker with the dials of how far out, how experimental, how playful do we want to be, right? You could do that exercise of viewing different signals through the eyes of different CEOs in regards to cut and dry, you know, Kager or market potential. It doesn't have to be the silly cosplay, let me be, you know, CEO of a different industry. It can be rooted in, okay, let's view this through the eyes of innovation threats and opportunities. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't have, what I'm trying to get at here is like the framing of an exercise that, like this, you know, can change the acceptance of it, but we're still doing the same thing. We're just trying to be more open-minded. Yeah, the frame of reference is so important. And you do this so well, I think, with your zine. And, you know, like a shout out to the zine. It was Thank the you. Substack 2022, like front runner. I don't know what the official title is, but basically just recognizing that you're delivering something really incredible. And it absolutely is. So we'll link that in the show notes um, for Thank anyone you. that's not already subscribed, of course. But I think that you do that really well where you you distill these, let's say, more theoretical ideas into something very relevant to someone working inside of the business context. Thank you. So I'm curious then, do you ever do this just for your own sake, like just for fun, where you don't look at anything that's like related to business or consumerism or transactions, where it's just purely creative? Hmm. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. I don't see why not, though. Mm. Um, th- there is something that, that I've been toying with, and, and maybe we could chat through it right now in real time. Thinking about, you know, futures thinking and kind of extrapolation and, and foresight, there's value in exploring, you know, decades decades ahead. What is life like? You know, that's a, that's a common exercise. But I do think there's value in, you know, taking one of these trends, signals, whatever we want to call it, but just writing about it in a, you know, creative fiction type of way that I think to your point is a bit more creative, but is still not out of the realm of what we're already thinking about or talking about. And I think what you're getting at here, and I think it's important, is that, you know, this cultural analysis, trends thinking, brand strategy, you know, work doesn't always have to be so cut and dry or analytical or philosophical or or mm-hmm. anthropological. There are ways in which we can still do this work that are more creative or innovative that don't have templates or guidelines. It could be, you know, a short story about someone living in the midst of climate migration and, you know, dealing with X, Y, and Z other phenomenon. And we don't have to talk about what that means for society. We could just, you know, be in the the, the shoes of this individual living in that future. There's equal value, if not more value, in a you know exercise like that than you know tying all these signals together and talking about survey results. Yeah, yeah, I love that, and, and making the fu- futures real. So yeah. you know, often we talk about you know when we're doing scenario planning or when we're just kind of talking about the you know most likely the preferred futures that we're building. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to extrapolate out what we're seeing today. So to take it to a new place and to think about the artifacts of the future and what are people feeling in this future and what's their like day-to-day habits, how are they different to what they are today? I think that's a that's a really great idea is to bring that together with that kind of like creative narrative process. 
Yeah, there's an uh, there's a an exercise from uh, the Institute of the Future, and the exercise is artifacts of the future. Mm. And the artifacts of the future exercise is what is a tangible thing, just a physical thing. Mm. It could be anything from a made up technology device. It could be a protest sign. It could be a piece of litter. Whatever it is, what is that artifact from the future? And can you tell a story around it? So if you imagine this thing and start building the world around it, you're able to kind of what we're getting at before, imagine that preferred future and again, not approach it from this, you know, analytical eye, but from a, oh, this is possible. Like this is a physical thing that we can hold. And this may be a result if we don't, you know, steer away or steer forward accordingly. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of making it maybe something that's not so pleasant as well, like mm-hmm. a piece of litter and, you know, yeah, a protest sign against your company or an image that maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Cause often when we talk about those preferred futures, those artifacts are like, this is a product that we've launched that generates tremendous sales for our business versus sure. this could be something that could destroy your company. Yeah. The more provocative, the better. Mm, Nice. I like that. So talking about provocation then, I'm really curious to get your, it's not your take, but, but more so just your process of thinking on how you catch your own bias. Um, And a part of the reason I had this question down is because I'm, I'm so curious because you do a lot of writing or, you know, thought pieces for very well-established publications like the Wall Street Journal, for example, Forbes. So these organizations you know, might be leaning a certain way politically. They might be, you know, known for a certain type of, you know, provocation that they bring to the public. So how do you find the balance between aligning to that and giving them something that's valuable for their editorial prowess, but also still not kind of conforming and making sure they're being really, really objective? Yeah, this is a tough one. And something I'm still trying to, to navigate. I don't know if anyone has the answer. If anyone had the answer, I would, I would, I would certainly love to hear it. Um, my immediate thought here is, I don't like how sappy this is going to sound, but it's the truth. The more we just immerse ourselves in just everyday life and recognize our own places of, of privilege and even like in a work environment privilege that like we're talking about things that we're not even living ourselves. I mean, one of the most eye-opening opportunities of my entire career was doing a series of ethnographies in the middle of the country for an insurance client. And I don't think if it wasn't for that experience of going to door to door of just everyday people of just the most, and, and this is not disqualifying or, or disrespectful, but like just the most average person was the most eye-opening opportunity in my career, which has changed my entire work. And even comments like this, which is to say, right, when you contribute to a publication, it's remembering that these people exist and that these people are being represented in your work. So my way of catching bias is recognizing that there's a line between my thought and then the truth or the objective reality of what's happening. And there's a responsibility when we think about culture or foresight or trends and recognizing that, yeah, I'm writing about things that are interesting to me, but how do I do so in a way which is representative of the lived experiences of the masses Mm. and not just my experience, you know, walking down 
in in the the Lower East Side on the way to work. <laughs> that like that is not mm-hmm. you know the the global perspective or experience. So how do I balance in writing or comments my own perception and my own opinions of that experience with this is not everyone's. This is my culture, not the culture. Um, and just being mindful of that, I think for me has been step one. Yeah. Is there a way to do that also online? So with social media, with the communities that you're engaging with or the types of algorithms that you're trying to bust out of? Just being mindful of our media diet. Mm. I mean, we're, we're seeking out, I mean, this is the most played out bit at this point, but we're getting served the things that we want to see. And there's Mm -hmm. pros and cons to that. But for as long as we're mindful that there's going to be an opinion that is inherently just going to, you know, make your skin crawl, go listen to 30 seconds of that and just center yourself again. You don't have to like it. Mm -hmm. I had done this this past week. It was actually unintentional because of the way in which I set up my my own feed. Something came across. I knew this was going to uh, bother me. It was a it was a debate on a, a hot social issue. I'm like, what does this person have to say? What is this other side of the perspective that I know I adamantly disagree with? What are they like? What's their rationale? What's their reasoning? And you listen to it, and you're like, yeah, I could understand. I could totally understand why this person would feel this way based upon how they shared it. Again, I don't have to go attack this person. I don't have to shut this person out. I don't have to you know agree with it. But for as long as I remember that person exists, that that to me, again, is a, is another solution of just being mindful of, of bias and once in a while, just trying to uh, recalibrate reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, ca- like catching yourself where you're doing that is so important because so much of what we do is driven by our emotions and our emotional reaction to things and our subconscious brain. Yeah, that's the, well, that's the difference. And I'm glad you bring that up. Like you could listen to this this audio interview that that I listened to, which is like, oh my God, how can this person even exist? But the difference here is like catching yourself before you react and like mm. try to just go off on this person. Like there's value in just listening to it and not reacting in itself. It's hard. It's really hard. But I think that's that's another step here, which is like you can listen to something and acknowledge that it exists before, you know, trying to respond to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like the act of just listening (laughs) versus like waiting to interject what your opinion is, um, is a learned skill. Uh, The, the thing that you were saying before about really recognizing that we are in a privileged position that we don't represent in most cases, we don't represent our consumers, Mm -hmm. um, I think is really important. The Anais Nin quote comes to my mind all the time when I'm talking about this kind of stuff, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. So do you, aside from sort of catching yourself and thinking about that and thinking about why do I think differently? Why do they think the way that they do? Is there anything that you do, any action that you take? Like you said that you were like a collector of hobbies. Is there a hobby that kind of puts you into that space of the everyday person? There's one program, which um, I'm a bit new to. I'm only about a, a year or so in. This past year, I've enrolled with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, New York, mm. And once a week, I speak to my little and I, I call him up. He's uh, six, seven years old out in, uh, out in Brooklyn. And that experience of, you know, the, the, there's a diversity of, of, you know, differences here, age, location, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But 
that experience of just remembering that these people exist and right this is not a you know research opportunity by any means but it's just a a grounding exercise and an opportunity to give back there's an unintended outcome here of like oh wow like yeah this could help inform my my own biases or my own approach to work that's not why i'm doing it but i think it's an example of there are opportunities to explore your own close knit communities or your own rather uh, communities next door that you may not have immediate access to and it's free and it's simple and it's easy and there is good that could come out of that socially so that's that's one for me that has been um incredibly eye opening yeah that sounds like an incredible initiative particularly with everything else you have on in your plate <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot but it's it's a healthy balance and again that that goes back to the the hobbies like when, I mean, this is not to compare the, the, the time in, in which I spend with my, my little, but another component of that is the hour trek on the subway out to visit him. And that's another opportunity to not think, to not read, mm. to, to not, you know, you know, immerse myself in more media, but to just kind of pause for a second and kind of let things simmer. Yeah. Also, because there's no reception. <laughs> yes, there's that too. There's that too. And you can uh, you can kind of observe, right? Like people watch during that time, which, totally. is, which is super fascinating. I love that idea as well, because you're taking yourself outside of yourself, like you're giving back, but you're also just, you know, like really not thinking about you, thinking about your little, which leads me beautifully to my last question for you, which is what your go-to is when you're trying to do that, when you're trying to look outside of yourself when you're trying to look outside the familiar? It's a lot. It, it, it's it's different publications, it's different Twitter accounts, it's different, you know, subreddits. But more often than not, I mean, here's the thing. Everyone's like, oh, you have to go immerse yourself in culture. You have to go, you know, you have to go experience culture. And I think what comes to mind for a lot of people are art museums or taking a trip to Bangkok immersing yourself in culture is taking a walk around the block or just being mindful of walking around Target. I mean, you walk around Target and to me, and I I talk about this one uh, frequently, I love Target because it's literally every single consumer product. It ranges from apparel, it ranges from beauty and and accessories uh, to food. Like it's this little microcosm of just consumerism. And it's just interesting to see what's on the shelf and then what people are purchasing. It's a little bit of a people watching exercise. And then further, I mean, the the most mind blowing thing to me in my local Target in, in Manhattan, they've now put up essentially like security barriers. It used to be on on certain products like consumer electronics where you have to like wave down an employee to kind of unlock the the case. But over the last month or so, there are now cases around um, toothpaste, toothbrushes, and deodorants. Mm -hmm. That to me is fascinating. And it's not even about the products or the brands themselves, but just our own interaction with in-person buying. And what are the implications there for employees? What does that mean for a retail experience? What does that mean for just society that we've gotten to the point in which trust and theft are now at this level? Or that this organization like Target has decided that we've lost enough money on stolen or potential stolen items that we're now investing in these really intense measures and security cameras, like surveillance Mm -hmm. as well. Like there's just a lot of things happening. You don't have to go to a Target, but if you apply that exercise of just being open and being mindful and looking around and just paying attention anywhere, you could get a lot of really solid insight. 
Yeah. Pay, pay attention and, you know, go take yourself outside of yourself, go for a walk, literally outside or observe people. I love that. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of this wisdom. This is no exaggeration, but the best podcast that I've done, really, like hands down, this has been incredible. And the, the irony here is that there was no thought that went into this. This is the, the one that, that we didn't do, or at least I didn't do much planning mm. on. I think over-preparation sometimes kills. I, I walked mm. down, I threw on the microphone and the headphones, and I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. What a brain. If you enjoyed this conversation with the brilliant Matt and it made you think, please follow and share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.